welcome back to Minus 16. I'm David Lewis. Well, if you're here in the UK, I hope you're managing to survive the heat of the British summer. It's been a little bit toasty and boy, don't we like to moan and let everybody know about it. But that to one side, I've been busy and found us another fantastic guest to join us on this episode. And it is the screen analyst. We are about to meet Ross Young. Hey, Ross, how are you? Welcome to Minus 16. Thank you for making the time to chat with us. It's great to be here. Thank you. So first of all, how are you keeping? Because I know you had a bit of a brush with uh, COVID, didn't you? I did. It was about seven days. Had to get monoclonal antibody infusions on day five, but uh, all good now. Sweet. So you're feeling healthy again? Yes, for sure. Now for you, uh, apart from everyone feeling bad with COVID, I guess the downside for you was no training, right? Because you're an avid Ironman enthusiast, right? Yeah, I, I did 12 Ironmans in four years and really enjoy it, but uh, I don't really run long distance anymore, so I just focus on swimming and biking, but uh, still really enjoy the training. So talk us through the disciplines of Ironman, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure like many of us, I vaguely know about it. I know you went to the World Championships as well, didn't you? That's right. So it's a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile um, bike, and followed by a marathon. So uh, it's, it's a good, it's a long day. It's a lot of me time. I was going to say, what is the time span for that? I mean, that is a lot. So what's the time span for it? Yeah, uh, you get 17 hours, basically. And my finishes were between like 10.45 and, uh, and 12.45 over the 12 races that I did. Because presumably to get out to the world championships, you have to be a decent level anyway, right? Yeah, you have to. Uh, so I had one really good race. I got in really good shape in like 2015. And uh, I had one race where I had some mechanical problems with my bike and some allergies. So that, that race didn't work out, although I was like in perfect condition. And then the next race, everything went well. And I was first off the, the bike in my age group and just kind of cruised on the run and qualified for Kona, which is every Ironman's dream. That's the pinnacle, is it? That's the one. Mount Olympus. Yeah, that, yes. It's like a week of pageantry. You have parades, you have like an underwear run, you like swim out to a coffee boat and you have a parade of nations. It's just a lot of festivities and it was really fun for my kids to be there and experience all of that that their dad was, you know, made it into that level. So it was really fun. So I just want to, we will be talking about Apple eventually. I, I promise people that we're not talking purely about Iron Man, but just before we get onto the other areas of your life, but the training for that must take an awful amount of time, I would have thought. I've got some knowledge of training for events, but not Iron Man, clearly. But yeah, I was probably training like uh, like 20 hours a week or so. And then like the, re the time spent on recovery mm. was probably another 10, 10 hours a week. So in total, probably, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week uh, dedicated to it. And when you're not training... It's almost a full-time job. Yeah, I basically retired for four years after selling my first company, Display Search, uh, to just do Ironmans. And I went from 230 pounds to 180 pounds. I lost 50 pounds oh. over that time. Yeah. Wow, wow. I mean, you're looking fit and healthy now. So are you still training competing now? I'm not really competing. You got the Ironman shirt on. Yeah, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a hard shirt to get. You know, to have uh, done the Ironman. I think maybe like 50,000 people have done it in the world or something like that, the one in Kona. So I'm proud of it. But um, I'm not really training for any races at the moment. I'm just trying to get in good shape, enjoy the beautiful weather here and uh, do what I love to do. So talking about your education, which is obviously clearly leading to where your business life picked up. I know you spent some time in Japan, didn't you, at university? That's right. So my story really starts when I went to Australia. So um, I studied at a University of New South Wales in Sydney. And the, I studied 
under a Japan expert, and he said, what you really should focus on is the relationship between U.S. and Japan, semiconductor industry, uh, the, competitive, the competitive issues there. And I got very focused on the semiconductor industry as my case study. And then I uh, decided to go to a graduate program at UCSD focused on, um, on the Pacific Rim. So I, had like, I was trying to get like a Japan MBA. And the U.S.-Japan competitiveness was my main focus. And then I happened to meet Bob Noyce, who was the inventor of the integrated circuit, founder of Intel. And he said, and I, I was going to go study in Japan for a couple of years. And he said, what you should focus on is the relationship between the chip makers and the equipment and material suppliers in Japan. Because the U.S. Uh, government and U.S. industry doesn't really understand that. And we need more education because Japan was such a threat to the U.S. at that time. So I went to Japan. I did a lot of primary research. Um, I really enjoyed it. I wrote a book uh, on, on, that I called Silicon Sumo, U.S.-Japan Competition in the Semiconductor and Semiconductor Equipment Industry. And by the time I got back, uh, and I sold the research to a consortium called Semitech and published the book and sold a, a lot of copies or a few copies to people in the industry. And over the next few years, the U.S. sort of overtook Japan. In, um, in semiconductors. And as a Japan expert, my career would be limited in the semiconductor industry. So I thought, what other industries the U.S. hopelessly behind Japan in and likely never to catch up where a Japan expert would have a, a good career? And that was the display industry. So I moved from semiconductors. Yeah. So I moved from semiconductors into displays. My first job was at in displays was at Brooks Automation, which makes the robots that handle the glass. So you have these big, thin pieces of glass, and they need super precise um, uh, robots that can handle the glass without breaking it. And at the time when I started, the industry was just moving to Gen 3, which was like 550 millimeters by 650 millimeters. And now we're at Gen 10.5, which is... Uh, which is um, about three meters around each side. So the glass is, is grown tremendously, mm -hmm. and that's how we went from that's how we went from making 15-inch panels cost-effectively all the way to 75-inch panels. So they kept growing the glass. Because you mentioned early on uh, when you had your hiatus and went into Ironman, you had a company early on. It's one of those sort of rags to riches stories, isn't it? You kind of started off with barely a penny in the pocket and sold it for 10 million. Is that right? A little bit north of 10 million. Um, so I was rounding down. Um, I was just being polite. Yeah, it's the British yeah, way. That. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I was I left Brooks Automation and and um, I had a, I was at a crossroads in my life. I, Brooks was doing well. I'd just gone public. Uh, Lamb Research asked me to be their flat panel product manager. Lamb is one of the most successful semiconductor equipment companies. And then my dad was running a startup um, in the display space on driver IC. And so um, uh, my mom stepped in and said, well, if you come to Austin and work for your dad, I'll give you, I'll introduce you to a lot of women. And so she gave me like you know, 10, 10 numbers. The old numbers was, always work. It was hard. Yeah, it was hard for me to date in Boston. I had a long commute, didn't know a lot of people. So I took their offer and then the company went out of business like nine months later and and um, I had no money. And so I, was, I, I figured out, well, what can I do? And, and so I 
published a newsletter like six days uh, um, right before SID. I printed like 300 copies. It was like eight pages. And what I did was I translated uh, Japanese mag- technical magazines um, about what was going on in the display industry and added my own analysis based on my own experience and just published a, or just printed out like 300 of them and laid them out outside the conference rooms at the big SID conference, which is the Society for Information Display. And they have a big show once a year. And people started grabbing them and reading them and subscribing. And I was having to send like ads you know, via fax because like email wasn't big yet. And so I, and I didn't have any lists. So I was just sending things via fax. And, um, and then I would have to go to Kinko's and have to go to FedEx in order to, to mail them out. And uh, I mean, it, it really was a rags to riches story. Started with nothing, you know. But, you know, had no capital in the business, just all sweat equity, just my labor, and eventually had 30 people. And we were doing $6 million in revenues um, when I sold it. And by the time I left three years later, it was up to like $10 million in revenues. And uh, so, yeah, it, was, it gave me a lot of confidence um, that I could you know, be successful in the display industry. I actually went and joined Samsung and um, working for and, them and after I left working for Samsung Display. It was actually called Samsung LCD. Mm-hmm. And they were interested in, in solar, photovoltaics, and they were, gonna, they were running that business through the display business because they were using similar technology, thin film technology, to make big solar panels, same way they make uh, LCD panels. And uh, so I learned about solar and then decided to start my own solar market research business. But that was going to require a lot of investment because the market was really in China and in Germany, and I didn't really want to make big investments. And so I sold that business, um, and then uh, then I started doing Ironman basically. And then I got injured, and I decided to come back to displays and hooked up with uh, former customers and former employees and partners of mine in the past, and um, kind of have like an all-star team of analysts uh, at DSCC. So I was going to ask you what tempted you back into the world of business then. It was just the time was right kind of thing. You'd missed it and you were ready to launch another company. Yeah, it was also the whole flexible, foldable display uh, opportunity. I was very excited about that. I thought that had a lot of potential and I was excited to see where that could go. And that was my real initial focus and also fell back into the things that I used to enjoy covering like new fab schedules and supply and demand and the equipment market. And, um, and basically, you know, we see OLEDs as the future of the display industry. And so we're sort of tracking where OLEDs are, are going next. So, you know, it's been smartphones and TVs. Now it's notebooks and tablets and, you know, monitors and automotive. And so we're, we're very focused on where OLED is going and, and, and spending less time on the legacy, uh, you know, more silicon LCD tech. Actually, one of the questions that has just come to mind that I wasn't going to ask, you just mentioned automotive, with Apple's announcement of CarPlay and the full-blown CarPlay, will the displays in the car be also partly your remit as well? Yeah, we already are covering that. You know, it's a small, it's a small segment, um, especially for OLEDs because there are lifetime and sunlight uh, readability issues. Um, so, you know, they're addressing that with tandem stacks and uh, in other ways. And, you know, the uh, OLEDs can be shaped and curved, um, you know, and that's attractive for the automotive market. Uh, so, you know, we think OLEDs will do quite well there. We're starting to see some bigger orders going to Samsung and LG for automotive. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not going to be the biggest display market, but 
probably going to grow the fastest from here. And also, you were always very quiet on social media. And then kind of halfway through last year, suddenly I started to see your name coming onto Twitter. That was clearly a conscious decision you made because obviously I, as many of the people listening to this podcast, we've got to know you as a leaker. Is that wrong to say? And you, your name was always coming up and anyone was talking about what we were expecting to see in the market. It was Ross Young of the SEC was such and such and such. So suddenly you became more prominent, more obvious, and more vocal and focal. Was that a choice that you made then? Yeah, I was looking for ways to grow the visibility of my, of my new company. And um, you know, seeing company roadmaps is something that we would do, uh, is something that we would work on for years. So you know, wait, going back to my first company, starting like 2000, 2001, we would actually like publish a report with all companies' roadmaps in them from a display perspective. Um, and it's kind of an artifact of our business because our main business is forecasting the market, determining market share, uh, forecasting prices and costs. Um, so it's really not about um, what's the next Apple smartphone display specs or the next Samsung phone colors. You know, That's not something that our customers really care about that much, but I know that there are a lot of people that do. And I saw a, a lot of press being given to uh, just crazy rumors that I knew were wrong. And I was like, you know, they should be talking to me. You know, why, why aren't they talking to me? I, I know that that's wrong. And the right information is X. So, you know, I would, tell, I would tell the media that if they asked me. And so I decided to start leaking the kind of information that we're seeing that my customers really don't care about, that I knew people cared about, and started. Uh, getting a good reputation for being accurate because I'm only going to leak stuff that I know is true. Uh, I'm not going to leak stuff that I, you know, that I don't believe is true. That would only worsen my reputation and worsen my company's reputation. So I tend to focus on, you know, what we know is happening, and um, and it turns out that there's a lot of people that care about it and getting a lot of really good press about it. So that we all understand the position of your company, then would I be right? in understanding that, say, Sony, LG, Apple, Samsung would come to you and say, what are the trends? What are the other people asking for? So they can all go away and make their business uh, plans for the next year and their forecast next year as to how popular OLED's going to be, LCD, when it was a thing. Is that kind of the position of your company? Yeah, so we produce a a large number of reports uh, on an annual basis. They're published weekly, monthly, or quarterly. And once a year, those companies will, will renew those reports. So, and um, so, like we have like an a la carte list, and they say, okay, we're interested in foldable displays, we're interested in OLED TVs, we're interested in OLED volumes and prices, we're interested in display costs, that kind of thing. And then they would pick from those reports, and they would buy them and get them throughout the year. Occasionally, you know, companies will say we have special needs and we want some custom work done, and we'd like you guys to to interview you know, panel suppliers in China and find out this or find out that. Um, but mostly, like we're probably uh, 60 plus percent of you know, these syndicated reports and maybe 20% uh, consulting. And, and when times were good before COVID, maybe 20% events because we do uh, put on a few events during the year as well. And I'm guessing that being, you're kind of at the coal face because if, none of these products can be made without a display. So you know if you're being asked by 
a number of different manufacturers about a certain type of display. That obviously gives you a very good indication, that, right, that's what's coming, I assume. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky in that we're surveying the supply chain on forward-looking shipments. And so when they, when they have to, so when a new model, let's say a new model is introduced in September, um, we'll see the production volumes for that model start in, say, July. And then we'll see that the, um, and we'll get access to perhaps some of the specs for that model. Um, so, you know, we know the volumes, we know the specs, and even if it's, say, June, we're getting that information. So I can see what the volumes would be for, like, the iPhone 14 different models produced by Samsung or BOE or LG for the next three months. And um, so I can see which models are going to be higher volume. Um, you know, what the focus is going to be um, and who's getting the most allocation from the panel supplier perspective. Um, so uh, that's the kind of, kind of volume we see. We also can get sometimes production data and that may have uh, on, the, on, a, on the smartphone side and we may have visibility into like the different colors for that product. So when I publish the number of colors or when I publish information about the colors of a given smartphone, you know, I, I can see the, the volume associated with those colors as well. So I know it's a sure thing. I don't get the marketing name. You know, the companies have all of these crazy names for the different colors, but I get the actual color. And how, I've been intrigued to understand and know, the information you're giving out, how does that not cross the line of NDAs and any confidentiality agreements you might have? Because you're hitting with the big players. I mean, I know Apple are one of your customers. So... I'm guessing they, are they a little bit pissed or are they happy that you're kind of putting the stories out there for them? Um, what Apple uh, executives told me is that they've gotten used to it, you know, and it's, I'm sure, sure it has served their interest having their products constantly being discussed mm -hmm. uh, and in the media. Uh, you know, I, I try to help them out every once in a while by um, clarifying, you know, incorrect information. Um, so we know what's going what's to be introduced and someone says something else and then that may distort the market and confuse, it, it, it confuse a lot of customers, potential customers, or cause them to be less interested in the product. I may you know, get out there and tweet about the right information so, and why people should get excited. So if we begin looking at sort of specifics now, if that's okay with you, obviously I don't expect you to transgress anything you shouldn't say, but I mean, there's... We're going through our lull at the moment, which everyone understands in the tech space. The summer's always pretty quiet, but I guess not so much for you because you're forecasting and looking forward. So we've got the, the fall events coming up. We know iPhone 14 is coming. So those panels, those screens on those phones, when would they all be locked down? I mean, I know you said production probably ramped up in June or maybe currently at the moment. When would you have known for a full lockdown, for instance, on the pro models, that it's going to be the pill and punch display that we're going to get this year? Yeah. So, um, you know, we started seeing production in June um, for, for the iPhone 14 lineup. Um, and we've, you know, the numbers are going up every month. Um, and, uh, and, so, and we have visibility into the forecast at the moment through August on a monthly basis. Um, so, and, and, and I've commented on Twitter that the, the iPhone 14 max volumes look really low to me. Um, they were like three and a half times below the 6.1 inch Pro volume, 
and the pro max volumes are even greater than that. So mm. the, the max is really far behind the pro max, maybe like one fourth or one fifth. So um, it seems to me that that product could be, you know, have later availability at this moment. Um, and so that's, you know, something that some people care about. Certainly it's in Apple's interest to sell more of the pro model. So it makes sense that they're going to have greater availability of the pro models versus the, the max in the 14 itself. Over in the UK at the moment, we're, we're experiencing a really painful cost of living crisis. Is, th- is that happening A in the US and also is it, are you noticing it worldwide and is that affecting volumes? Um, so that is affecting smartphone volumes overall. You know, it seems like Apple is likely to be a little bit immune to some of those issues. You know, Apple's Aren't they always? customers are more loyal. Yeah, Apple's customers are more loyal. You know, we're seeing greater weakness in like the low end and the mid-range part of the smartphone mm. market. So the, the Chinese brands have been hit quite a bit harder. Um, and, uh, and Samsung, of course, you know, has had some issues as well in their sort of mid-range and lower end lines. since They're such a high volume supplier. But the high end has done quite well uh, and is expected to continue to do well. Foldable looks like it's going to do well. The volume projections are like double from, from last year. Uh, and the iPhone volumes look to be pretty solid. Although, you know, I think there are, a lot of uh, buyers that may wait to w- wait for the USB-C version of the, the iPhone next year, since they, so many people complain about the Lightning cable. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, so many people have, you know, multiple Lightning cables, so you know they're going to have to throw them all away if they get go with the 15. So, you know, the projections are that the 14 is on schedule, and you know, th- there's been. Some of the suppliers are seeing you know, greater numbers than they originally expected, like Samsung, because VOE has had some issues. And so that has resulted in greater volumes for Samsung. So a moment ago, you mentioned foldables. Were you, were you meaning in general or for Apple? It sounded like you were talking almost Apple. <laughs> Obviously, my ears are trying to pick up no. on every nuance that you're saying at the moment, forgive. But yeah. uh, you're just talking about foldables yeah. in general, yeah? Specifically for Samsung. So, you know, their projections are about double what they were last year. So. Uh, I think they are going to be very aggressive like they were in their marketing last year. And, you know, perhaps we're going to get some better pricing on the fold, uh, on the fold four. Um, so, yeah, they, um, I'm impressed by their aggressiveness and that they're confident they're going to be hitting those volumes for, for this year. And talking of foldables, I mean, do you see a future for Apple in Apple? Do you think they're actually interested in it or is that boat sailed now and they're just letting it do its own thing? You know, I think it's a threat. To Apple, so if Samsung gets even more aggressive and say prices the the Z Flip uh, at a similar price than the Mac um, or you know the the uh, the 14 itself, you know Apple is going to have you know you would think Apple would have to respond or you know they would lose you know a lot of potential high end clients. You know it, you know if you're going to have a foldable which is believed to have a premium price below the Pro and the and there's no Sacrifices or compromises on the on the um, clamshell phone from Samsung, the Z Flip. Like if they improve the camera, um, you know, I would think Apple would lose quite a bit of market share, um, and that would be certainly a big concern to them. You know, one of the reasons that Apple may not want to do foldable is, you know, it would really benefit Samsung because the display cost is going to be a bigger percentage of the of the price, mm-hmm. and the cover the cover material, the cover window which is right now at Samsung ultra thin glass that is 
that Tinsling is involved in fabricating. And that's the, like, the very top, also, is it? The, the bit that we touch. Yeah. 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 So that, that also is more expensive and that would also benefit Samsung. So Apple would see less margin for phone if they go with foldables, at most likely at a clamshell configuration. Perhaps, you know, the more expensive uh, infolding type, which is more of a convergence device, you know, it's priced very high. There's a lot of margin there. There's a lot of room to price below Samsung or above Samsung, you know, at a smaller size or larger size. And I think that's what Apple's looking at. You know, the other real issue is that those, that cover window, the UTG, the ultra thin glass, that is a supply constraint. There's only so much capacity. And if Apple was to do a high volume device, there would have to be a big investment to really increase the capacity for that, um, for the cover window. And I don't think Apple's ready to, to force that to happen um, because certainly there would be costs associated with it um, and risk associated with it. And they would want multiple suppliers and perhaps, you know, they, you know, shot is the one that's doing most of the business. Apple tends to work with Corning, you know, maybe it's not clear what the confidence level, you know, that Apple has with, with multiple suppliers. So, you, you know, I think Apple is going to continue to watch that market. But I think, you know, we're hearing rumors that they're interested in like a 20-inch foldable um, device. So the, the supply chain is calling it a notebook. You know, you could also say it's a tablet or even a, uh, uh, you know, an all-in-one. Uh, but, you know, that is something that wouldn't be high volume, would be likely very expensive. It would be very unique, um, to, could be very unique to Apple. And, um, you know, they're uh, they're. What people may not understand is that they're actually one of the leaders in display technology. They're solving problems for the display suppliers so that the display suppliers could make products for them. Um, and in uh, other companies like Dell and HP, you know, aren't doing that to that sort of degree. Apple has a very strong display engineering team, a lot of really talented people that have been there for a long time. I didn't realize it. I assume the displays came to Apple as a done deal, but you're saying they have quite a bit of input into them. They'll be looking at user problems and making them a, a, an easier product to use. So they are working sort of hand in glove with the manufacturers of the panels as well. Yeah, so they they will demand requirements. They will have requirements and that they will uh, ask the display manufacturers to meet those requirements. And their requirements may be more challenging um, and innovative than the rest of the industry. So, for example, on the um, MacBook Pros that were introduced last year, they were mm -hmm. the first company to come out with a mini LED notebook and ProMotion, right? Variable refresh. Nobody else was even working on it. But Apple, you know, had the visit, had the foresight to say, this is where we think the market is going to go and it would want this kind of product. And, um, and we're going to, we're going to take, you know, we're going to be early to market with this product. And um, we think it gives us a lot of advantages, not just technically, but also, you know, it reduces their reliance on Samsung because Samsung is not in the supply chain for mini LED uh, notebooks or tablets. And so it, it gives them more leverage over Samsung in negotiating with them for OLED. Um, so now Samsung can pick, I mean, Apple can choose and create uh, an environment for lower pricing between OLEDs and mini LEDs. You know, they're, they're using them both. You know, if, if, uh, if one of them wants to get more volume, you know, they're going to have to uh, outperform and offer better pricing, better support than the other. So it, it's a, it created a really nice competitive environment. No other brand is really doing that 
to the extent that Apple is. And, and like with OLED now, they're making requirements where it needs to have a tandem stack, you know, which really will, for IT, will really overcome the concerns about lifetime, will really boost brightness because the mini LEDs are so bright. Mm. For OLED to compete and replace mini LEDs, the brightness can't be compromised. It can't be sacrificed. So you know, they're going to have to really boost brightness. And Apple's pushing all of the OLED suppliers to really improve the brightness and the lifetimes of their products. And so we, we don't see other companies doing that. And that's why companies will dedicate new fabs to Apple, which is something that they also want. Um, so they don't have to compete with other companies for, for, al- for allocation. And you know, they get the entire p- company's support at that line. You mentioned 120 hertz refresh rate and ProMotion. Are those technologies hugely costly at the moment? And are they likely to come down with the economies of scale as more suppliers begin taking them on board? Yeah, I think it's a single digit, you know, maybe a high single digit increase um, for the panel supplier. Um, so it's very much uh, something that you know, the, the brands can, can market and easily cover the, those additional costs. Clearly, the market's going there. and in smartphones and in high-end tablets and, and in gaming notebooks. So it's a trend that everybody's following. And how close to the final action are you? I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, just to one side, I've got a studio display. Now, I seem to recall earlier this year, you knew that there was a 27-inch something happening, because you wouldn't presumably know if that panel was going to be used on an iMac or a standalone display. Would that be right? You just know there's a 27-inch panel in the pipelines. Yeah, not even uh, the panel suppliers always know um, where the, what the product is. They just know, you know, there's the size, there's the resolution. They may not, you know, have complete visibility into the final product. Apple doesn't let them know. Or, you know, the people we're talking to don't have that insight. But, you know, we were talking to mini LED companies in this case. And the mini LED companies were saying, yeah, we're building this 27-inch backlight for Apple. So, but they didn't know the exact configuration, or at least the people we didn't talk to uh, didn't know or were reluctant to disclose it. And going down the line, I think, again, on Twitter, you've mentioned that there could be a, a, another version of the studio display coming out this year, possibly a 32, possibly 6K. Is there anything you've seen from the data you're getting about that? No, we're not really hearing anything about a 32 and 6K at the moment. You know, 27 and 6K? No, I'm not hearing anything about 6K. <laughs> it's like you're on, um, on the on defense call. I'm like trying to get every word out of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be 4K or 5K, honestly. I, all I can tell you is it's going to be mini-LED, but it's not going to be as many mini-LEDs as they're using in their MacBook and iPad Pro. So it's, it's going for a lower-cost solution. Um, and you really don't need for monitors. You're a little bit further back from your monitor, so you don't really need um, as much resolution, mm-hmm. as height of a resolution as many mini perhaps, um, in a uh, in a monitor. And the monitor market is more price sensitive uh, than the notebook market, right? Monitors are selling for five hundred or less, while notebooks are selling for you know one to three thousand. So you can uh, you can justify a more expensive mini LED backlight solution for a notebook than you can for a monitor. There are a lot of mini LED monitors with not that many mini LEDs. So that's sort of the environment that Apple's competing in. Um, but, you know, 27 inches is small. You know, I have a 34-inch monitor. You know, I wouldn't, I would be, not, I wouldn't want to go down to a 27-inch even if it had many LEDs. 
know, I, I have three pages side by side, which I really like. Now, it's a bit of tech that I'm guessing might be important to you as, a, as an athlete and as an Ironman, the watch. Do you wear Apple Watch mm-hmm. or you do? So I, I have an Apple Watch. Okay. I'm not wearing it these days. In favor because of? Because I have, I, I like my Garmin swim watch. Um, so w- I haven't figured out, maybe someone online watching your program explain to me how I can sync up my Apple Watch to my Garmin and Strava. So um, uh, to the Garmin app and to Strava, I don't know how to do that. So my Garmin watch simply does that. I just hit a button and it speaks to my phone. And then I see my results in my Strava with all of the training information that I, that I want to see. Sorry, that records the same kind of information. Is it your heart rate, your distance covered, I'm assuming calories burned, all of the kind of critical information you need? And it has probably more swim metrics than the, the Apple Watch would have. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, same thing with uh, my bike computer. You know, I have a Garmin bike computer and I can see my cadence and my uh, heart rate and my power and I see it on my bike. And then, you know, it communicates to my Garmin app and it shows up on Strava. The Apple Watch, you know, it's harder to, to see that when you're biking to look at your watch when I can be looking at eight eight fields, eight or 10 fields on my bike computer the whole time. But I, I did, my, my heart doctor told me that I should be wearing an Apple Watch because if I have a cardiac episode, you know, you can hit a button, you know, take the kind of test that you need that he finds useful in, in assessing, you know, any heart issues. Because I was having some issues where my heart rate would go over like 220 for like five, 10 minutes at a time. And it, and it wouldn't slow down. and uh, I didn't have my watch on at the time, and so I couldn't capture what was happening. Um, this was a result of, in his view, taking in too much caffeine, like having like I would drink you know coffee with a lot of caffeine and maybe have a coke and then, and then maybe have these cliff shot blocks. I'm taking like a hundred milligrams of caffeine, and uh, it's just at my age, that's not healthy for your heart, especially if you're doing vigorous exercise. So I've learned to back off. Don't take the coffee away from me as well, please. No, <laughs> everything yeah. but the coffee. <laughs> so yeah. obviously I bought the watches up because we're expecting there to be a launch of three watches in the fall this year. And for the first time, possibly, this, well, it's now the latest rumours uh, being called a pro rather than a rugged. Are you seeing any display analytics that suggest there is a, a, a new watch coming? For sure. We've been uh, publishing in one of our reports for about six months now that, that they're going to have a third, they're going to have a, a larger display, 1.99 inches diagonal. Um, and that will be sole source uh, to LG display. You'll have LCPO, so it's a uh, variable refresh and always on display. And, uh, and um, it'll have chip on film, it'll have the integrated touch. So yeah, it, I mean, the volume isn't as high as the uh, smaller displays, so it seems that you know it's going to be pretty expensive, and it would make sense given those volumes that perhaps it's some sort of rugged or pro model that's going to be you know at a higher price point. Because of course we have heard stories just recently that this this watch could be priced around about the thousand dollars mark, and again you're saying from the technology that's going into it, certainly from a display point of view, that would kind of add up, would it? Yes. <clears throat> That's right. I don't know anything else about the case or the, the band or anything else. But yeah, I mean, the volume, you know, you would think that the volumes would be higher if it was at a lower price point. So it must be, you know, something pretty, the price pretty expensive. And you've been talking a lot about OLEDs, that being the future. 
Why are OLEDs so much more of a future than mini LEDs? I mean, that might be a very naive question. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to know more clarity, just in a layman's term. I'm sure many people listening, same thing. Why is OLED so much going to be the future for us? Well, cost is one reason. So mini LEDs, for example, in the MacBook Pro and the iPad Pro, cost quite a bit more than a similar sized OLED. And that's because the implementation is, you know, there's 10,000 mini LEDs. So you know, it, it adds up very quickly. Um, so you can buy an OLED for less. Mm-hmm. Um, the OLEDs have higher contrast. The OLEDs are lighter. They have better viewing angles, um, better response times, better motion performance. Um, you know, the only thing that Mini-LED offers is greater brightness and, and um, the potential for lower cost depending on the implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really just about the brightness. kind of narrows the gap between an LCD and an OLED because the black levels are better on a mini LED versus an LCD. OLED black levels are, that's sort of the gold standard, is that the, each pixel is completely off, while in a mini LED, like each zone is off. And you may have like 200, or, you know, you may have a few hundred zones on a mini LED LCD or a thousand zones, um, while on an OLED, each pixel is a zone, respectively, and so you, know, you could have two million zones. So. The OLED should always look better mm-hmm. uh, from a contrast and, and uh, black level perspective, other than in a really bright room or outdoors because of the higher brightness of the LED um, and the fact that OLEDs could wash out at, lo- at lower brightness. You know, that's where mini LED might do better. But so the trend, the, te- the technology outlook is for OLEDs to really improve technically. And that's happening because Samsung has a large number of Chinese players Know, nipping at their heels, and they're trying to, you know, stay ahead of them. The best way they can do that is through technology advances. And the fact that Apple is really wanting OLEDs to, um, you know, improve their performance before they're going to be implemented in, in Apple's uh, IT product. And so those two things are leading to tandem structures, phosphorescent blue, which would, you know, lower power by 30%, increase lifetime. Uh, something called color on encapsulation, where you remove the, the polarizer, which blocks a lot of the light, and replace it with a very thin uh, color filter layer. Um, there's uh, something called uh, multi-cell array or something like that, where you create like a, uh, a light um, absorption structure where you, you maximize the efficiency um, by creating like a, uh, a lens through um, um, these uh, high... Uh, I can't remember, it's early in the morning for me, certain kind of material. Um, and so there's ways to really boost brightness. And then what's also going to happen is cost is going to come down by moving to these larger fabs. Instead of Gen 6, they're going to go to Gen 8.5 or Gen 8.7. And so those fabs will be optimized for larger and larger panels. And then the other thing that's happening is rather than a traditional um, LTPS or LTPO backplane, which uses a lot of mass, and it requires very high capital um, intensity and capex. Um, they're going to go to what's called an IGZO or oxide backplane, which may have half the number of mass, which really lowers the capex and should result in um, uh, you know, uh, uh, significant reduction in depreciation per panel. So you have all of these trends kind of happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you're getting better performance at lower cost. And so the outlook looks really good. For, for OLEDs, and so that's why we're really focused focusing on, on them. where OLED is going. 
A little bit earlier on when we were chatting, you mentioned about obviously the lockdowns in China and the, and the, the delays that made. As far as you know, A, mm-hmm. are they kind of catching up now? And B, I read some stories that it was only going to be possibly the Pro and Pro Max 14s that would be actually ready on for release a week after the fall events with the others on pre-order. So is there still some delay going on? Um, I think the 14, 14 Pro and 14 Pro Max volumes uh, suggest that it should be available at launch. Um, you know, there are three suppliers on the 14. Um, you know, the risk is where you only have one supplier, which we think is on the Pro and the Max. Um, and the Pro volumes are quite good, and the Pro Max volumes are quite good. So it's really just the Max, um, which is surprisingly low. So that suggests that there will be some sort of delay my mind at, at this moment. It could change, you know, we could see, you know, we could see a huge shift in uh, September, but the data through August shows that there's not enough max model. I think what surprised me is, uh, from what I've learned talking to you, is, is how quickly that the, the, it's kind of not much for lead time at all. It, it's a, a very rapid turnaround that you're seeing from manufacturer display to finished product. Because in a lot of industries, there can be a eight, 10, 12 month delay, but you're saying, you know, you're seeing a ramp now ready for products in just two months time. When the panels are finally delivered, again, naive question. So if we say, look at an iPad, when the panel comes in for an iPad Pro, for instance, is it literally the finished size, shape and everything? All I say all Apple have to do is drop it onto the product, the iPad, and it's finished. Um, yeah, it's typically like two to, I mean, it depends on how the panel is shipped to the OEM who's manufacturing it, is it airshipped or by boat? Mm-hmm. Um, and the assembly times are not very long. Um, and then it goes into inventory and shipped out. So, I mean, four weeks is probably a reasonable assumption from panel wow. shipment to phone, phone shipment. Yeah, so phones, uh, panel shift in August should result in phone shift in September. Wow, that is so quick a turnaround. I'm really surprised. I just assumed there'd be this massive lead time between manufacturing and OEM getting out the door. So, so, uh, and again, obviously then through the year, the beast is just continually being fed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I remember the, the term I wanted yep. to say, which was micro MLP, which is micro light control patterns. Um, and so they have these high refractive materials, which create a lens over each pixel and that allows you to maximize the brightness. brightness out of it. Yeah. No, no, no. As you say, we've got you up early in the morning, so I appreciate you finding time to chat with us. <laughs> I know I really, when I saw what time in the morning it was, I thought, like, how come you're not training this time in the morning? I was really surprised. Do you get up and go out the door first thing normally? Or? <laughs> no, I, I kind of try to get some work done first thing, wait till the sun is out and uh, enjoy the, the vitamin D uh, being out in the sun exercising. Before you get into that vitamin D, I've just got a couple of other questions for you. Um, sorry, I, I mean, sure. you're looking way too healthy anyway. I think you can avoid the sun for a day and just sit in with us. But um, the, iP- <laughs> the, the iPad, <laughs> there's been this talk of a 14-inch possibly coming along. Are you seeing anything about that? Yeah, we heard some comments about that from um, the uh, backlight suppliers. Um, kind of surprised about it because you would think that if they're going to go bigger than the iPad Pro, the 12.9-inch mini LED iPad Pro that it would also be an iPad Pro and have mini LED. And, you know, we heard that they didn't do the 11 inch with mini LEDs because they wanted to focus on 12.9 inch and up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't want to, they don't want to bring the cost of mini LED into smaller products where it's harder to, to justify the higher price. Um, so 14 inch, I mean, it's kind of a strange 
uh, product from that perspective. But on the other hand, you know, we're in a point where prices, panel prices have been declining for over a year. They're very inexpensive. Um, and they're at all-time lows in most cases. And, it, and, you know, perhaps a panel supplier made Apple a very good offer on a 14-inch product where they could offer a very large, inexpensive iPad, you know, perhaps less expensive than the 11-inch. Uh, and maybe that's what's creating some interest uh, from Apple is to get, you know, try to expand the category and bring to market you know, something big and cheap, you know, that's done really well in like t- the TV market. And like in the U.S., people and you know, try to get the biggest TV for the least price, lowest price, you know, 75 inches for, you know, five ninety nine or whatever. So it doesn't have to be, you know, mini LED or, um, you know, variable re- or, you know, the highest refresh. People just want big and cheap. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what they're, they're targeting, uh, you know, maybe for the education market or, uh, you know, maybe there's some reason for it. You know, we don't have a lot of confirmations on that product, but, you know, we have heard it from two sources. Uh, we're not, I wouldn't say it's 100% happening, but we've, we've heard it from enough people for us to say, you know, we think it may happen. And we talked about the, the really rapid turnaround and lead times for, to final product. If we were looking ahead a year now, say towards the 15, which is inevitably coming, you mentioned it, when it goes to USB-C, are you already beginning or will the manufacturers, now that the 14 is kind of a slam dunk and they've got an idea, they've got a handle on the volumes, will production now begin to gear towards the 15 coming next year? Will they begin looking at that pretty soon? Well, there's a, a, a engineering schedule where they make samples and then Apple can sort of tweak what they see and they may change the specs. You know, There's still time to change the specs, um, but for the most part, it's pretty much locked in, I think, and they're just building prototypes for any any modification right okay so already there'll be something in somebody's hand at samsung and apple looking at next year's tech and ironing out the problems now ready to begin to go into production next year yeah and we don't see a a lot of big changes so the the punch and pill holes will move to the 14 and to the 15 and 15 max so they'll all look the same Mm -hmm. um and uh you know, we don't we don't know of uh, of course USB C will be a big change, but you know I'm sure Apple will continue to in, try to improve the efficiency of the display, um, and uh, you know we're, we're not aware of anything super different at this moment. We don't expect LTPO to move to the in very in promotion to move to the 15 and 15 Max, for example. Um, so you know I think in in 2016, I'm sorry. The iPhone 16 in 2024, yep. we think that's where we could be under panel face ID. And we know that they're working on that tech already. And, um, and it, the, uh, the panels can be transparent already. And we think the panel suppliers have been qualified for doing the under panel face ID and making the panels transparent in the, you know, the previous notch area. The issue is going to be sort of the sensor teams and the display teams working together. So it gives you the best results. Um, and, you know, and, and if any software needs to be modified, you know, that, that could take, you know, some period of time to get everybody uh, to get to that optimum solution. But, so, you know, we, we're hearing that 2024 looks really good for that. So, of course, uh, that was an obvious one. I'd forgotten about things such as that, the under screen 
face recognition. And presumably the always-on as well, they all come directly down to the display supply chain, right? It's those guys that are implementing that for, for us to be able to use it at the end product. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah the yeah. display manufacturers are, are pivotal in, in those areas. And you'd mentioned, funny enough, a second ago, something I was going to ask you was that the actual unit cost of the panels is coming down and down and down. So in the grand scale of the metrics of producing, say, uh, you know, an iPhone, the display isn't one of the high cost units of that phone then? Well, it, it is. I mean, it's around 10% of the street price. Right, okay. In like maybe, you know, five to 10% mm-hmm. or so. So it is a significant cost adder, um, but it's so important, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and it's the most important um, component, I think, in the, in the product. But if you add up all of the silicon versus just looking at one type of silicon, um, or one chip, you know, and the semiconductor content probably higher than the display. But in terms of a single component, I think the display is the most expensive. I've just bought uh, one of the new MacBook Airs, and you were spot on with the sizes on that months and months back. Now there's rumours starting about there possibly being a 15-inch version of the MacBook Air. Too early to tell, or yeah, we've already said it's a 15.2, um, so. No, it'll probably be a little bit wider than the than the fifteen. Mm-hmm. I mean, than the previous versions. Um, so, yeah, I think you know Apple because of their uh, chip capability now. Um, you know, they're in a great position to launch more products at times that are most conducive to them, rather than the whole IT. I mean, rather than the whole Intel. Um, world all launching, you know, the latest Intel chip at the same time. Apple is in such a great position to differentiate with their own chip at timing that they want to launch at. And um, it gives them, I mean, with the control of the display supply chain that they have, plus, you know, where they are in semiconductors, I mean, they're stronger than ever. Mm. Um, And, you know, I, I expect Apple will take a lot of share in all of the IT categories because of, uh, how well they're doing with their semiconductors, you know, they can get, um, you know, the most, the best capacity or the most advanced uh, um, capacity allocation at TSMC and produce the, the fastest, most efficient chips at timing that, you know, is best for, for them. So, you know, I, I definitely think we'll see Apple continuing to gain ground in, in the IT space and the Mac, you know, becoming more significant for them. And uh, I'll let you go soon, promise. Just a couple of other quick things I was going to ask. I mean, we assume that you're an Apple user, but are you? Because I know you said you prefer the Garmin watch because of the swim metrics, but do, are you an Apple guy? Yeah, I have a MacBook Pro and I have an iPad Pro. So, um, yeah, I mean, and I have the watch. I need to start using it more um, in case I have a heart attack. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm, I, I love Apple products. You know, um, I think they're easiest to use, and you know, I I, I, I bought a Z Flip to experience the foldable phone, but it's such an adjustment to go from iOS to Android that never done it really hard. And yeah, my I, I braved it because I really wanted to experience the foldable phone and give real user experience with it, and I really liked it. But like just texting alone, like uh, if I uh, send out a group text. You know, it goes to them as individuals, not as they can't maintain the group text to the iOS users. You know, if I use WeChat, that would be different, but none of my family is on WeChat. And so that was a source of frustration for them. And they said, Dad, use an iPhone. So I had no choice. 
Are your kids Apple kids as well? Or Yeah, they all have Apple computers and, and Apple um, and, and iPhones. And what, what's sort of a, a day in the life of Ross like then? So, I mean, you get up and do some business. Are you office-based, working from home most of the time? Do you have to go to site? Do you go to Apple? I mean, you obviously you hit and play with some of the, the, the biggest in the, in, in the markets. So do you have to spend much time on site at their locations and their facilities, or is it all uh, working from your own office? Yeah, it's all working from my own office. I mean, we'll visit customers you know, once or twice a year here in the US and more if they ask for us to meet, but it's so easy just to meet virtually mm. um, and meet with them virtually, you know, wherever they are, all on one Zoom call or whatever. But, it, mm. you know, when I'm in Silicon Valley, I'll, you know, take a week and meet with lots of companies. Um, you know, I used to go to Asia a lot and meet with customers there as well, but, it, you know, our, our people are so good in Asia that I don't need to be there. And they'll give me reports and, um, you know, we'll make sure I, I get that information to put into, into our reports and deliverables to our clients. But um, yeah, lately I've been dating a lot, so that's what's been taking up a lot of time. That's why you got the smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, so we know that you're a mad keen athlete still and train a lot. I mean, not as much as you used to, but outside of that, what do you do to relax and unwind and get away from all that? I mean, is it, I presume, much like myself, it's no screen time. You just want to get away from the screens for a bit and just do your own thing. Yeah, I mean, other than going for long bike rides, swimming and uh, going to the beach, probably not that much. But like, uh, there are all these dating apps. And so I've been very busy on the dating app. Um, so I had three dates yesterday. So it's hard to get too much done when you're dating that much. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pulling back on the dating situation. So now, like the first few weeks of the quarter for my company, my, my role is not particularly that heavy in terms of my workload. So it's the next uh, eight, you know, six to eight weeks that get a lot busier. But, um, you know, it's beautiful in La Jolla and San Diego. So try to be outside and go to the beach and, uh, you know, walk or bike. You near to the beach? Yeah, I'm about a mile away. Nice. I, I, can, I can show you the ocean if I point my camera. Oh, as good as that. Near as that, really. You've got a better scenery than me. You yeah. really have. Probably time we let you go then because you've obviously got good things to be doing and uh, dating apps to be logging on to and uh, way more interested in talking to me. But uh, just the good stuff. Where can people find you? Uh, so on Twitter, um, it's at DFCC Ross. And I have both followers and super followers and try to provide the latest and greatest things for my super followers. And um, our, web, our company website is displaysupplychain.com. We have a free blog that you can register for. And we post a lot of content uh, every Monday. I was on it this morning looking at it. I was having a good read through. So... Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I'm glad we finally managed to hook up because I know it's been a little bit troublesome what with a little bit of ill health and the time difference and so on, but uh, I'm sorry it's so early in the morning. I hope you managed to get some rest. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate it. Many thanks indeed to Ross for finding time to join us on Minus 16. And if you want to see the video version of this podcast, why don't you pop on over to YouTube and you can see how healthy he looks. Ross, I hope we didn't keep you from training from the beach for too long. If you want to get in touch with me in between podcasts, you can find me over on Twitter at DTalkingTech. Of course, you could hook up with me on the website, which is TalkingTechAndAudio.com. Thank you ever so much for listening, and I'll catch you in a couple of weeks' time. Hey.